Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. Our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. We bring you weekly topics and thought-provoking guests to get you to stop, reflect and think about what it means to be a leader in a modern world. Our aim is to help you become the leader you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Today's episode is brought to you by my new book, You're a Leader, Now What? The Proven Path to High Performance Leadership. The book contains many of the great lessons that we've been learning together during the Leadership Project podcast, together with many other lessons that I've collected over my 30-year career as a leader. The book is aimed at first-time leaders, but really there's lessons in there for everyone. It would be greatly appreciated if you could go and grab your copy on Amazon as either an ebook or a paperback, and if you could leave us an honest review on Amazon. Now, on with the show. Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Rebecca Horton. Rebecca is a leadership and HR specialist and the founder of an organisation called Bold HR. She's got an international career that spans two decades at the pinnacle of talent thinking. And today she helps organizations to do business differently, to face inevitable disruption with greater confidence. And she's had some really interesting experiences in the last few years, even pre-pandemic, around some organizations like Australia Post that were going through massive disruption that led her to get these skills and to help other organizations today who are all going through massive disruption as we've seen in the last two years. She's also the author of the book, Impact, 10 Ways to Level Up Your Leadership. And she has a very deep focus on what she calls the B-suite, which is that middle management level that is often the glue that keeps an organization together. And I'd love to deeply explore some of her leadership tips about the tricky ground that many of those B-suite leaders get themselves into. So without any further ado, Rebecca, please do introduce yourself to the audience. Give us a little flavor of that impressive background of yours and what led you to be with us today. Oh, thank you, Mick. That's lovely. Well, it's great to be here, first of all. Really, really grateful for the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about these sweet leadership. My background is in talent and led some very, very large organizations and some pretty major restructures and transformations. And one of the big things that I learned as I became increasingly known as a change agent was the incredibly critical role that was played by mid-level leaders. Ultimately, when it came down to it, our strategies, our change, our performance would survive or fail, really dependent on that one cohort of people in our organizations was the B-suite. So if they were on board, whatever we were attempting was going to succeed. 
And if they were not on board, whatever we were attempting was going to fail. And that was a real light bulb moment for me and led me to set up Bold HR and led me to work exclusively with this group because they are absolutely critical and their jobs are so darn tough, really hard work in the B-suite. So that's, uh, that's me. That's what brought me to, to work here with this group of people who I think have the toughest gig um, on the planet. And uh, even Boston Consulting Group will call them a forgotten but critical cohort. And it's good to hear big four statements like that coming through, because really for the last 30 years, middle managers, you know, the B-suite middle managers have really been the butt of corporate jokes for far too long. And I think that's been a big mistake that we've made that we now need to start reversing. So tell us more about this change element, right? So you're, you're saying that the success of any change rises on rides on the back or falls on the back of middle management. Got a lot of people out there that if you say to them, you know, I want you to lead a change element or a change effort in my business, they'll run a mile and go, no, that's the, no, thank you. No one likes change. There's a lot of misperception, I'm going to say, about why people fear change and why change efforts don't work. Can you tell us more from your experience? why so many change efforts do fail. Yeah, absolutely. I think they, let's demystify it. So let's take it, uh, take it out of corporate change jargon, right? Because there's a lot of change management jargon in the world. Let's just talk about normal change. So let's say that you are giving up smoking or you're going on a diet. The, the trick, and we all know the trick, the trick is to build new habits and new systemic habits that stop you from acting in the way you used to act. And in your mind, the trick is to replace the rewards that you used to get from this behavior that didn't help you or didn't help your corporation and replace those behaviors with new behaviors that reward you just as much, if not more. Now, what we know is that people can only really do that when they're in an environment that's set up for them to repeat that habit, to build the muscle that this becomes their new way of being. And that environment needs to feel psychologically safe enough for them to experiment with giving up the old reward system for a new reward system that isn't tested yet. So, you know, if you asked me to give up Maltesers for the, you know, for the sake of losing 10 kilos, I'd really have to know that the 10 kilos was going to happen because I really, really love Maltesers. And corporate change is kind of the same thing. You know, we are hardwired to worry more about what we're likely to lose than we are to get excited about what we have to gain. And in the middle of all of this, the person that creates that environment, that creates that safety, that allows you to experiment and reminds you to keep building your habits is your direct line leader, which is usually your B-suite. You know, if they haven't made that habitual shift, then you're still living with people who eat Maltesers every day. It's so much harder for you to stop eating Maltesers, right? But if they've all quit as well, and you're the last person doing it, then you'll come on board far, far faster. So there is a really important role that mid-level leaders play in being the first person to adopt the new habits. And if they're not sold on the reason why, and if they're not supported to do it, then they're sitting there munching on Maltesers in front of people who are trying to quit. It's not going to work. That's a great analogy. I love it, uh, Rebecca. It's really cool. And you, firstly, I feel like I need to have a Maltese right now, but that's okay. I'll, wait <laughs> I'll, I'll wait until after the show. 
but it's a really good analogy. I want to unpack uh, probably three things there, but we'll, we'll go one at a time. So you say that change is all about building up new habits and we know that habits take time for them to habituate. That's, that's the whole idea of it is to become the new habit. How does an organisation hold space for people so that they can take the time and build this new muscle? Yeah, that's really going to come down to psychological safety, Mick. You know, when we feel safe to try things, when we feel safe to experiment, when we're not afraid of failure, we are more likely to attempt something new and to try a different system. When we're under immense pressure to move quickly, to never make a mistake, you know, to be perfect all the time, then very naturally we hold on to the tried and tested methods that have got us to where we are in our careers. So for a lot of people, this sense of, you know, yes, that sounds like it would be better, but I don't feel safe enough to give it a shot. I feel that if it doesn't work, I'll make a mistake and the mistake will be my fault and will reflect badly on me in my career. And I'm so busy right now, I can't afford the necessary dip in efficiency to then recover using the new tools to being as productive as I was before. I can't afford that dip. So it's the organization's responsibility to kind of set up an environment where you can afford that dip of productivity. They're expecting you to be less productive for the next three months while you reprogram your way of working. And they expect mistakes. And they almost want to give quotients to the mistakes that you need to make. You know, we need you to fail 25% of the time for the next three months um, in order for us to know that you've really tried and tested this new approach. Because we all know that when we're learning to ride a, a bike or driving a new car, we make mistakes, right? So it's the same as trying to work in a different way at work. Mistakes are actually expected, not problematic. And I think we haven't typically set that up at work yet. We're expected to kind of switch from one vehicle to another vehicle seamlessly and perfectly and just as efficiently. And that's just not reasonable. It's almost like you're reading my mind, Rebecca, the, the metaphor that came flooding into my brain when you were talking was riding a bike. And for all the parents out there that have taught their children how to ride a bike, what happens when your, your child falls off the bike? Do you chastise them and say, well, you made a mistake, it's all your fault? Or do you encourage them and pick them back up and, and see what they've learned and, and, and set them off again? So giving them that space to be able to make mistakes. The key one for me there is the failing is only part of the story though, Rebecca. If, if we fail and we don't learn from the fail, then we're not progressing. How do you build a learning culture alongside that new habit? That's an absolutely brilliant point, Mick. You know, we, there's a wonderful phrase that came out of the Agile Manifesto that says, you're either earning or you're learning. And there's this sense of value that is applied to learning being equal to revenue. In traditional businesses, that's not always the truth, right? So, so how do you create this sense of learning? I think there's a couple of different methodologies that you can apply. So the first is to really make sure that you're having regular discussions about how you're building the habit. So again, you know, take it out of work, put it into, um, put it into going on a diet. You know, if you were Weight Watchers, you have regular catch-ups once a week to talk about how things are going, to measure 
to talk about why you're not losing the weight that you thought you were. What are you doing that maybe isn't as helpful as you thought it was going to be? Or what are you pretending that you're doing and you're not really doing? Um, So there is this sense of kind of joint accountability, learning and measuring progress along the way. If we're really good at that behaviorally, we've got lots of models that prove it gets us to the goals that we're aiming for. If we don't do that, we set people up into a space where many people will be in self-deception mode. You know, they'll say, oh, I'm doing it and it's not working. And therefore, I don't like this new approach and this way of working won't work for me. And when you unpick it, they're not really doing it. They're not doing it either at all or they're not doing it the way they were taught to do it, or they're not doing it consistently. So, of course, they're not getting the results that they were hoping to get. And without regular check-ins along the way, you're not going to spot that and unpack it before it becomes a new habit and the worst kind, because it's neither the old way nor the new way. What I'm picking up here is the power of an accountability partner or accountability buddy, whatever you want to call it, and whether it's your boss or a peer or someone else in the organisation. I'll come back to your original metaphor for a moment. If you have two people that are trying to quit Maltesers and they gang up together and support each other, they're substantially more likely to be successful than if they're on their own trying to quit Maltesers. And put that into any habit building in the workplace. Whilst we're talking about Maltesers, and forgive us everyone in the audience that is now eating Maltesers because we've mentioned it so many times, maybe we should get this episode sponsored by Maltesers, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so anyone out no, there, there's business application to what Rebecca is talking about here. I'd like to now explore the concept then of resilience because there's also, there's a corporate learning element here as well that when you've tried something and it didn't work, there can be the temptation to never try it again rather than learn from it and go again. Where does that come in, the resilience to dust yourself off individually and collectively and go again. Yeah. Well, certainly setting up accountability structures and, you know, group check-in conversations really gives you that resilience because what we do by having these ongoing learning conversations is we move away from definition of resilience being when I fail, pick myself up and start again. And we actually move it to I'm just trying lots of different ways to get around this, you know, to make this work. So it's this concept of many different approaches exist and they could all be right. And you could all have a different one as long as we're getting to the goal that we laid out, as opposed to this binary approach of try, fail, win, lose. So we move away from that and we move into something that's just more iterative. It's more natural. It's more organic which is, you know, if I can't make it work that way, I'll try it this way and then I'll try it that way and then I'll turn it on its head and I'll try it this way. And in the end, it'll work because we're all quite clever and we know our jobs. And the reality is it's not rocket science, right? So if we try it three or four different ways, we will find a way that works and works for us, which means it's more likely to stick. And I think that's the new version of resilience is being more creative and trying different ways until you find the one that works as opposed to the binary version of keep hitting that wall, right? And that's, I think, the older version of resilience. Yeah, I really like that, Rebecca. And what I'm loving is the power of the language used. So you're doing similar things, but you're reframing the way that you describe it. So no, I didn't fail. I'm experimenting. And I'm, I'm finding a way. That's a really powerful uh, metaphor there as well. All right. I really like this. 
Then I want to come back to the motivation that you spoke about before. And you said two interesting things. You said about fear of what they're losing versus understanding what they're gaining. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So our brains are wired to be about five times more interested in what we're going to lose. So I don't know if you've ever read Dan Kahneman, who's um, the behavioral economist. He talks about how the brain works. And really, we are wired to avoid loss. We know this, you know, gambling houses know this, everything around how we make decisions as humans is really wired to not lose, right? So if if we think of change as, you know, the prospect of losing what was in order to gain what will be, we are already wired to say no to the change. We don't want it. We don't want to lose whatever it was. Even if what it was wasn't great, at least it was familiar. You know, sometimes we'll put up, and we've all been here, sometimes we will put up with an absolutely rubbish situation in our life or work because just the comfort of something that's really bad but familiar is greater than the discomfort of moving to something completely alien, unproven, and and unfamiliar. So that's something that we we kind of need to start all of our change efforts very, very clearly understanding that people are more scared of what they're going to lose, even if what they lose is rubbish, than they are excited about what they're going to gain. And until we kind of start there and then really honor people's sense of loss and work with them through that and try to unpick exactly what is it that they feel that they're losing. And there's some great models out there that help with that. Then you're able to move people through in a very targeted way, replacing their loss factor very specifically, right? So rather than this sense of let go of the old world and adopt the new world, I mean, that's a huge statement. What you could say to somebody might be, look, there's a particular process that you're very, very expert in and very familiar in, and it kind of defines who you are at work, and you're a bit of the guru of this thing. And this is the process that we're going to destroy and replace with something new. If that person's entire work persona is kind of attached to that process, well, of course, they're going to resist it. You know, so what you need to be able to do is to create them, you know, replace that reward mechanism with a new version of a reward mechanism and be very targeted and specific about that work. And that will create a bridge for them to be able to move through their change more quickly and to be able to adopt the new way more willingly. There's so many things I want to unpack there, Rebecca, and please give me a little bit of license here to play back what I took from that and then and then you tell me whether whether I got it or not. So the first thing is in any change effort is to think about who is benefiting from the status quo and how do they think they're benefiting because it could be just a perception. It may not even be reality, including things like how do they see themselves today, their identity. So their identity might be hooked onto this somehow. And then to think about challenging the questions that they might be asking. Oh, well, if we change this, this is going to happen. But is that true? And what does it replace with? And attach their identity to the way things are today. What do they look like at the other side of the bridge? And what does that new world actually look like for them individually? Not corporately, but for them individually. Is their identity now 
even more valuable than it was before or is it just the same and they didn't see it as the same? So a lot of it's about that perception of what are they going to lose and how are they benefiting from not doing any change versus what benefit they might get from the change. That's exactly right. And that's, I think you picked it up perfectly, Mick, no, no misunderstanding there at all. And there's a couple of brilliant models out there that really help us to be far more targeted about how we look at that question. So, you know, David Rock's scarf model, beautiful, simple, but really outlines for us what are the five things that really matter to people, like really matter at an intrinsic level. And if you threaten any of those five things, then somebody, and, and you know, change threatens their status quo. If any of those things are threatened, they are going to put up significant resistance And the best you'll ever get is really unwilling shift. Now, if you're more targeted, you can actually turn that resistance into adoption or even into leadership because you've identified what's the thing they're frightened of losing? How do I show them that they're going to maintain that and, in fact, even improve upon it? And that will then mean that they don't lose anything. There's only gain. And if if you're able to do that in a very targeted way, and it is at an individual level, and there's time and effort involved in individualized leadership, but when you do that in change, you see people very, very sharply moving from resistor to leader of the change because they maintain whatever it was that was important to them. It could be their status in the team, and that could be an unspoken status. You know, they could be den mother. Um, you know, the the lovely, kind motherhood figure, and they're worried about losing that role. If you're able to recreate that very specifically in the new version of the world, then they will migrate to it really fast. If you haven't called that out in the new version of the world, they'll hold on to their old, their old role. Yeah, this is really powerful. And I think there's probably a lot of people in the audience thinking about this now. I've seen a lot of change efforts where a very visionary person has stood up and painted a vision of a future world. And for them, it's so obvious that we need to cross this bridge and go across because utopia is on the other side of this bridge. Why, why, is, why aren't people crossing this bridge with me? But if you haven't addressed the loss that they might feel, whether it's real or not, they're not willing to take that first step yet. So, so address, okay, what is it that you fear of losing? and address whether that's true or not, and then paint that vision of the world on the other side where the grass is green and and they've got an even better job or a better standing or whatever the case may be. How does that sound? And they take whatever it was with them. You know, if if you're able to create that reality for them, you know, you see it with with people who are leaving, leaving their home countries because of war or, you know, or, or threat to them in that circumstances. They take something with them. And for so many of them, that one picture or that that one artifact or that one bag or that one teddy bear, if they can take that with them, they can do the thing. They can make the journey. They can make the change. If they can't, it all falls apart, right? All their resilience falls apart. So we know this about humans and how we behave. So it's something that we need to copy more in the corporate environment and, and actually start leaning into the humanity of who we are rather than creating these kind of corporate constructs that asks us to behave differently when when challenged to do things that we find psychologically quite threatening. 
That's another powerful metaphor. And the question that pops into my mind now is when we embark on this change journey, what are you taking with you that will be a support or comfort from the former way things were done so that you still have some level of familiarity, some, like I said, comfort uh, associated with that? That's, that's really powerful as well. What about when it gets quite serious and the perception, real or not, of the individual is that this change effort might mean that their job doesn't exist anymore? That's often a reality with major restructures. And one of the things that I think organisations repeatedly do in error is hold that information back until the very last minute. Um, we, we have this tendency to do organisational design and restructures as a big reveal. You know, we kind of go into the tent, do all this design, and then ta-da, here is the new structure and the new world. The silence while you're in the tent designing the new world for your people out in the field is probably the most hurtful period of change that there is. That is That silence, that vacuum of information is where speculation and gossip takes over, where you know heightened, unnecessarily heightened anxiety is created, uh, where people fill the fill the silence with their own version of the world. And of course, we all catastrophize when we're under stress. We don't go, all right, well, the worst case scenario will only be this, this or this. We go straight to, you know, DEFCON 5 and it's the worst case scenario is massive. And it's, and, and by the time the change machine kind of catches up with you and tells you what the worst case scenario really is, they've lost you. You've, you know, you've gone into panic mode. And you're in such a heightened threat environment that you can't actually hear, like you physically cannot hear the information to help you tone down your level of stress and anxiety. So I really don't love it when organizations don't tell you what's going on. So I've got a really, really strong recommendation to organizations that even when you have to go into the tent and do your org design and you can't share that until it's ready in first draft, and of course, everyone gets that. You can still be talking to your teams about the process that you're going through, where you're up to in your design, what barriers or hurdles maybe you're thinking through so that people can use that information to keep themselves under control, to keep their logic levels um, under a little bit of control and not let the anxiety simply sweep them away. Because, of course, the anxiety is a real thing. And, of course, job loss is probably one of the most stressful things that work can ever do to you. But again, if you're signaling strongly, you know, what are the likelihoods? So a lot of organizations, wrongly in my opinion, will sometimes say there will be no job loss. And then four months later, there is job loss. And of course, no one believes it in the first place. So you've created simply by making that statement that might have come from a really good place. You know, I want to make people feel calm and relaxed. So I'm going to say this thing. Of course, the reaction is the complete opposite. Everybody goes, well, I don't trust that statement. And now I don't trust you to run this process in a trustworthy way. And that's a problem because then from that moment on, everything you do or say has a questionable flavor to it. And it creates a massive division in your organization when actually what you really need for change to work is alignment. Yeah, that's a a certain trust killer right there. And it's going to diminish anything further that you say from that point onwards. There's two powerful things I take there, uh, Rebecca, and then one extrapolation I'd like your, your view on. The first one is, yes, in a vacuum of information, people draw their own conclusions. And when they draw their own conclusions, it'll be untested. 
and could be catastrophized. The second one is once people are in that root brain, right, so they're in their, their fight, flight or freeze mechanism, their rational neocortex is shut down. Uh, you might get a little bit of limbic brain, a little bit of emotion in there a little bit, but mostly you're going to get fight, flight or freeze and they're not actually listening. So by the time you go to share with them the good, bad or indifferent news, they're, they're shut down because they're, they're in panic mode. The third thing I want to extrapolate on is about the inside the tent, outside the tent kind of concept. I'm going to borrow some words from a previous podcast guest, uh, Jake Jacobs. And his view was that it's not that people don't like change, they don't like being changed. So if you include them along the way and say, all right, team, we're having these problems and this is what we're trying to address, the best ideas might come from that B-suite if you actually include them in the conversation. How does that sit with you? Oh, I, I firmly agree. And, and having, you know, having chaired a couple of restructures in my time, you know, there, there are certain legislational reasons in certain organisations why you can't involve people too deeply in what's going on and at certain times in the process. But even with that constraint, there are plenty of discussions that can and should be had. So I'm a big one for saying, you know, when you're going through significant change, talk about the process, even if you can't talk about the subject. Yeah, the content, that's right. You might not be able to talk about how the restructure design is going, but you can talk about where it is in its process. You can talk about the key considerations. You can say, look, right now we're trying to trade off the difference between automation and outsourcing. You know, right now we're trying to do, we're having this debate. Actually, we've done our first draft and we all hated it. So we've gone back to the drawing board. You know, things like that, you can keep sharing. It wouldn't overstep the line. And I think, yeah, I think we just probably coming from a really good place. You know, we, we want to wrap our people up in cotton wool and protect them from the, the nasty reality that is perhaps a restructure. But by doing that, we actually create a worse situation. And in fact, we forget that they are all grown ups with mortgages. They're professionals. They can take a lot more of the truth than we often give them. And, and I do believe it comes from a good place. But unfortunately, the result is often a, a negative result. So, I, so I'm a big one for saying, you, 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 yes, you've got to have some people in the tent. Of course you do. But you also need to make sure that you're popping your head out every now and again and giving people a status update because they are all watching the tent, right? The entire organization is watching that tent like a hawk. So you've got to keep talking to them. There's two things I'd like to add there, Rebecca. One would be sometimes there is no update is better than no update at all. So if you're working away and there's nothing more substantial to share, you're still better off popping out of your tent and saying, team, thank you for your patience. No update today, but please be rest assured that we will let you know as soon as there's something that we can share. It's still better than just going quiet because in that vacuum, they're going to draw their own conclusions. The, the second one I then want to add is you said about they're all adults and we need to remember that times. And, and probably two of the worst words that a leader can use in one of these situations is don't worry. To, to turn to the organisation and say don't worry because it can do two things and I'd love your thoughts on this. They may not have been worried but now you've used the word worry so they say, oh, is there something I should be worried about? So you've given it oxygen where maybe it didn't exist. And secondly, the way it can be interpreted can be, 
don't worry about this. The adults have got it. We'll let you know when we're done. And it's treating them with disrespect by telling them not to worry. How does that sit with you? I really do agree with that, Mick. I think that simply by saying, yeah, there's probably a third element to that. I think simply by saying, don't worry, you're deliberately disregarding the reality that they are worried, you know, and it's completely normal to be worried. So you're asking them to, you're either asking them to repress a natural emotion, which is unhealthy, you know, or you're telling them that what they feel is wrong. And it isn't, it's right, <laughs> obviously. So I think I think there's that third element of, of almost don't dismiss their worry by saying, don't worry, embrace it, unpack it, discuss it, address it. Because by doing that, you actually chunk it down anyway. You know, you, you make the worry smaller, more tangible. You know, you, you might be able to say there's a lot to be worried about. Uh, these are the three things that actually are not on my radar for concern because these are the things that are not going to happen. We've already agreed these in our principles. Everything else we're still working through, and I will let you know as soon as we've got updates on them. I love that, Rebecca, and it's the richness of the information that you're giving there at that point. It's not just a dismissive statement. It's an inclusive statement. Yeah, well done. It's also sharing a little bit of yourself uh, by doing it in that way as well. All right, one, one thing I'd like to test now is about change weariness. There's so many organisations out there that have been through so many change initiatives that when the next one comes along, everyone starts with a, ah, here we go again kind of statement. Tell us your thoughts on that. Do you know, a couple of years ago, the average restructure, the average organisation, large organisation was restructuring every 18 months. And it typically takes more than two years to get your return on investment for any typical restructure. So we're kind of in this spiral of loss leading change, right? And I think, again, it's potentially because the pace of work is so rapid. The disruption in the, in, you know, in the markets remain incredibly high. You know, we'll, we'll never see that there is a brilliant phrase, and I'm sure I'll use it later, but you know, this pace of change that we're seeing now is the fastest that we have ever seen and is the slowest that we will ever see. <laughs> and that's a little bit oh, depressing for everyone who's change weary, right? But I think that's because there's this big change that's happened in the nature of change. One is that change used to be kind of start, stop. You would go, right, we're going to do a restructure and then we'll stop and then we'll settle. And then we might do another one three or four years later. Now we're doing them back to back to back. They are constant. And yet we've still got this start-stop mentality, right? We've got the launch of the change, we have this arc of the change, and then we finish the change. But at the same point, we've actually started another one halfway through. And I think what we're doing is we're now conflating models, change models, where we've had a start-stop model, and now we're in constant change. And actually, the start-stop model is what's exhausting. It's the starting and stopping. If we were always in flow of change being more iterative, more organic, if we were constantly going, oh, we're constantly tweaking things and we're constantly trying new stuff and we're constantly reorganizing, we don't really care where we sit or who we report to. This is our constant nature of being. I don't think it would be anywhere near as exhausting as the start-stop because we know, even if you were a car engine, the inefficiency of stopping and starting all the time, you know, that there's even a name for it, that there is actually wear involved in that transitioning all the time. So if you were able to get into a more permanent state of flow, 
and I don't love to use that word because I think it's been overused recently. But if you were able to be in a constant state of change comfortably without that transition cost that grinds your gears every time, I think you'd reduce the exhaustion that is associated with change. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I like this a lot. And the language again, so the language that you use, the culture that you set and calling it out as adaptive. We are an adaptive organization rather than, okay, we've got this change project because projects have a start and finish rather than we've got this change project to actually declare yourself as adaptive organization and to realize that you're going to look at it every three months. We're going to look at, okay, how are we facing the current demands of the market and do we need to pivot? Do we need to adapt? That's a really interesting mindset shift that you're talking about there. I think it is. And there are some organizations that are beginning to do it really, really well. You know, we look at the massive difference between Microsoft of eight years ago and Microsoft today, for example. They're what I would call out as a casebook study in what was quite boxed off traditional approaches. And now they've shifted almost utterly to a far more iterative, fluid way of being. And a lot of organizations are trying to emulate that. And I think the well, the difference the difference is huge. And I think it's just more it's more reflective of reality. You know, when was the last time we were like, right, that's it, no more change for the next three years at home? Even you know how we don't live like that. I want to now dig a little bit deeper into these B suite leaders. I'm going to start with change, but then I want to talk about some of the other situations that they find themselves in. So coming to this change weariness, and if you can pivot to a more adaptive organization and you can get the B-suite in that mindset, that's certainly going to help. But we've got a history where they've been through multiple change efforts. And I have seen with my own eyes, Rebecca, leaders that have done this, where they're a B-suite leader, let's call it a middle manager, the new change initiative has come along. And when they're talking to their bosses, they're all you know, to the C-suite, they're all, yes, 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 all on board, all on board, and they tell a good story. And when they pivot and talk to their teams, they're using language where they might as well say, oh, we've got this other change initiative, it's, it's the latest one, this one will pass just like the last one did, just keep on doing what you're doing, you, no need to change anything, I've got this. And so they're upwardly managing and making it look like they're on board with the, the change. But downwards, they're telling their team, oh, don't worry, this is the flavor of the month. And three months from now, they're going to give us another one. So, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. Tell us how you break that cycle. That's a really, really good one, Nick. And there's, there's yeah, at the heart of this one, there is the problem that the B-suite serve two masters. You know, they, they serve the executive, they're part of the executive, uh, but they also serve their teams and they are the representative of the workforce. The problem there, of course, is that you're neither loved nor trusted by either because you are known as a double agent. Of course, it's the nature of the structure of the job that you're in. And it means that you do have to use your judgment to manage the expectations of both. And sometimes that rightfully means thumbs up to your boss and then you translate that into this isn't actually as big a change as they think it is because they don't know our jobs like we know our jobs. We're just going to change that button over there. But ultimately, everything else is more or less the same. They're just very excited about it. Now, that can be a truism if you've really looked at it at yourself and recognize those resistance, you know, any resistance in you to anything that you fear you might be losing. 
So if you are very well attuned to your own position on this change, then you're more likely to be able to apply your judgment in an accurate and constructive way. And ultimately, as long as it's constructive and it's still going to deliver what the strategy has laid out it needs to deliver, what I'm finding more and more is that mid-level leaders are taking greater agency in how they want to deliver it. So rather than be told, say exactly these words to your team, run this process like this, do it this way, the more sophisticated organizations are saying, this is the, this is the change that we want to enable. Uh, we think it's these three things that are the big levers. How, are you, how do you want to implement this in your area? And give them time to go away and come back with a bit of a game plan themselves. It's like what you said before, Mick, people don't like being told what to do. People don't like having change done to them. Uh, it's, it's even greater than that. People don't like being told what to do. So if you prescribe to them exactly how they're going to do it, particularly to experienced leaders who have a lot of responsibility day to day, you are likely to get them to do the exact opposite. Now, it's not necessarily a grown-up reaction, but it is a super common reaction is to say, I'll do it how I, how I see fit. You pay me at this level. Trust me to do my job. So just tell me what you need. Don't tell me how to actually deliver it. That bit's my piece. Now, actually, when you see relationships like that between the C-suite and the B-suite, the relationship works quite well. It's when the C-suite or the change leader drops into the B-suite leader's space and starts telling them how to do their job that they immediately get that, that reaction of resistance and you get that undermining and that sabotage of the change initiative's goals. There's two really powerful things there, Rebecca. So first of all, we, we came back to the perceived benefit needs to be greater than the fear of loss. And in this case, the middle manager may be feeling like they're out of position in this change, where at the end of this, maybe their position won't be the same. So, so the perceived benefit greater than the fear of loss. Then I'm hearing you empower, enable and include that B-suite leader in the way it's implemented. So the C-suite might have architected, okay, this is the shift that we're trying to make. But instead of turning around and say, and do it this way, they're then turning to the B-suite and say, and how, would, how do you think is the best way to do this? And now they feel like they're part of the change instead of being told what to do. Absolutely right. I think if we, if we could reframe what we think each leadership type is for, Mick, I'd probably say the C-suite are there to determine what work we do, you know, where we're going, what goals we need to achieve, and therefore what priorities we're working on. But the B-suite are there to determine how it's going to happen. And I think when the, when the C-suite drops into that space, they forget a couple of things. It's been decades since they were on the tools. It's been years since they were on the front line. They don't know the business at that level the way the B-suite does. And the B-suite doesn't understand the vision and the strategy the way the C-suite does. And that's okay. But it's when we start to try and dictate to each other that we trigger that sense of autonomy, right? And that's a threat. Everyone loves to have a bit of autonomy. Some people love to have a lot, but you know, it's, it's the one thing that gets triggered when you get told what to do is your sense of agency gets taken away. And that's when you start to be quite rebellious, right? Yeah. And people will start actively working against the change effort at that point if they feel like they're, they're being told what to do. Yeah, really good. 
So inspire people about the change, inspire them about the, the benefits that are at the other end of the bridge, help them to address any loss that they feel along the way to make sure that they don't feel that that loss is permanent or maybe it's not even real and then engage them on how we're going to do this. Don't tell them how, engage them on how. Yeah, really powerful stuff. All right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. And this is a little bit of change within, but I want to ask a very specific question that I get asked a lot actually, Rebecca, and I'd love to hear your view because you're right in the thick of this. I get a lot of leaders that come onto our webinars, onto our courses, et cetera, et cetera, who want to be a great leader. They want to be inspirational. They want to have the right balance between performance and caring. They want to create a great environment where their team can do their very best work. And then they find themselves stuck in an environment that they don't like. They might be corporately in this toxic culture, alpha style leadership. They might not actually like their boss, for example, or their boss's boss. But here they are with their team of, let's just go seven to 20 people. And with their team, they want to create a great environment. What does a B-suite leader do here? Do they just focus on their team? Do they turn around and fight the battle and try to change that toxic culture from within? What do they do? It's a really tough one, Mick. It's really, really tough. So what we're seeing right now is that people are voting with their feet. You know, the the reaction to that is, I'll go and get another job. Um, And that's not necessarily the wrong reaction, by the way. So if you are in in a culture that is endemically toxic, then the likelihood of you alone being able to change that is extremely slim. You can create a bubble for yourself and your team. You can reach out to your peers and find those that feel the same as you do and create a, you know, a squad of change agents who perhaps collectively can fight that fight and take that upstairs. Or you can throw yourself against the, you know, against the brick wall of the entire culture. And unfortunately, the likelihood is that you will fail. So I'm always one to advise picking your battles, right? Um, What we know with change agents is just one person against a thousand is never going to win. If you can gather 10, 20, 100, you've got a much better chance of turning the tide. It will still be tough. It will still test your resilience. You've still got to really want to be there for the long range. But the amazing thing is that that does gain momentum because what we find in toxic cultures is there's a lot more neutral people than we realize. It's just that we haven't given them an alternative to move towards. So there is a sense of once you've got a little bit of critical mass, take the risk of making a stand to to show leadership can also be like this and watch those neutral people come out of the woodwork and come towards you more rapidly. That builds your critical mass, that creates a level of momentum that then will mean that people will start noticing. Now, there's risk in being noticed because the people who notice could be the ones who love being alpha, you know, being the old style 80s leader. And some of those will see this as a threat. You know, you're endangering what they are familiar with and what they hold dear by offering an alternative style of leadership. But what's interesting is that most of them won't consider it too much of a threat. Most of them will see it just as an alternative approach. And what's been very, very interesting 
to note with with leadership when you're when you're seeing this almost like this fight between two models. Um, you know, if we think about it from a kind of a an agile and waterfall perspective, that's been a, an ongoing battle where they pretty much hate each other. We're not really seeing that evolve. I think there's a couple of reasons why. And probably the most important one is there's no leader on the planet who comes to work to create a toxic culture. They don't get out of bed and go, right, today I'm going to create a toxic culture. You know, today I'm going to make people's lives miserable and, you know, model myself on Gordon Gecko. There's really nobody left that does that, right? What they are is, is I think, trapped in the, in the habits and the histories of their leaders before them. And also perhaps trapped in an environment where they've not had an alternative model shown to them so that they could make a choice to make some changes. I think as long as you don't go in telling them that they're wrong and creating a combative environment, um, and in those situations, you've got to make sure your critical mass is up to the game, otherwise you'll lose. If you're going in simply offering an, an alternative method, then I actually think the two can coexist. And I've certainly seen organizations where they do, not easily, but they do. So very powerful stuff there, Rebecca. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm hearing that you do need to try. You need to try to get a coalition around you of people that believe in the things that you believe about leadership, about approaches, that there is a better way. And from that, you can be accountability buddies, you can be allies, et cetera, et cetera. I fully agree with you that horrible bosses don't turn up to work going, I'm going to be as horrible as possible today. They just don't do that. In fact, many horrible bosses don't even know that they're a horrible boss. They think they're a great boss. And there's a lack of awareness of how their actions and words are impacting those around them. So once you have that coalition of the willing, part of it is to gently bring it to the attention of that leader or leaders, if there's multiple in the organization, to make them aware that, you know, at that last meeting, boss, when you said, do you know that everyone interpreted it this way? And they might be completely appalled and shocked. And, oh, that's not at all what I meant. And, but without that self-awareness, they can't shift their behaviours either. So you need to try. And the final thing, and it's actually the first thing you said, but I'll put a bow on this and go, if you then try that multiple times and you're not getting the psychological safety or you're getting beaten back, then eventually you need to look around and go, you know what, this place is not for me. And that's a really important one, Mick. The, you know, what we find with B-suite leaders in particular is that tenacity and their ability to you know, strive against great odds is actually part of the reason that they got promoted to the job they're in in the first place. It becomes part of the definition of your success. The flip side of that very tenacity can be that you stick it out in a toxic environment or in a toxic relationship with your leader for too long. It starts to materially affect your confidence. It starts to repress your natural leadership style. You start to second guess who you are and how you operate. And that doesn't really set you up for operating in that environment at your best. You know, you start to see yourself declining pretty rapidly in that space. And it also starts to undermine your success in a job hunting capacity as well. So you've got to get your timing right. And for a lot of B-suite leaders that I work with, you know, knowing when to call it a day is a bit of a skill and it's a lot earlier than a lot of them would believe. You know, a lot of them will stick it out to the point that they've intrinsically damaged themselves and their careers. 
So I think we've all got to be a lot more objective about making calls where we go, all right, the incremental difference I can make here will not actually make the difference that I require. So rather than throw good effort after bad, it's time to call it quits. You should do the same thing with project discipline. You know, you need to know when to stop an investment because it's no longer a good investment. We're actually all pretty bad at that. We all keep we keep betting on that horse that never wins. We keep putting more money into something that is clearly a failure. We kind of need to think the same way about our relationship with our boss and our careers. That's a really powerful one, Rebecca, and I have seen that as well. I've had coaching clients that I've helped when they've arrived at a new job. And one of the things that I've seen is they've had some really bad bosses in their old job, but they've arrived cynical. They've arrived at their new job cynical. And if you arrive at your new job cynical, all you're going to see are the red flags. You're going to start seeing things that confirm the beliefs that you've already firmed. So you might land in a new job where your new boss is actually really good on balance, maybe a few rough around the edges. There's no such thing as a perfect leader. But you arrive in a new job with a new boss who's ultimately pretty darn good, but you're seeing the downside. You're not seeing the upside anymore because you're scarred from staying too long with the previous one. Yes. And then the very first thing that happens when you arrive in that new job is, of course, that you build a reputation for being spiky, cynical, negative, when that's not the real you, right? That's not, that's not the you that you were before. And unfortunately, then that's creating a new spiral, a new false economy about who you are and how you operate. Yeah. Really interesting. All right. I'd like to dig into your book a little bit. So uh, impact 10 ways to level up your leadership. So for all of our leaders out there listening to the show now, what would be the, let's just, you'd pick your favorite ones. What are the key ones that you would like to share with our audience today? Well, look, the way that we structure the book is it's around three pillars of the curriculum. One is how to control the pace of work. One is how to use that space to think and to center yourself. And the third is how we make the case by influencing everything around us. Now, we always start with control the pace because what we know with B-suite leaders is the level of work that goes on is ferocious and relentless. So if we can't get a bit of control over that, we tend not to make room to actually learn and try new things. So we always start there. But what's quite amazing is that B-suite leaders are incredibly good at work, right? They're good at managing work. That's why they got to where they are right now. So once we kind of remind them what they need to do to get work under control, we see an instantaneous reaction in that space. Then we can move into a bit more of the mindset space, which is around how we use the space. Um, And in there, I think there's often quite a lot of challenge around what is my role? What is my space? How do I set boundaries and contain your expectations of who I am? And particularly in the context of everything that's going on today, the definition of leader is changing, right? It's changing constantly. So that's quite a a thoughtful process. But I think the one that has the biggest impact usually is the, the make the case piece where we influence everyone around us and we start thinking very deliberately about how we manage and motivate our teams, how we motivate and collaborate with our peers, how we manage up very deliberately 
Uh, for a lot of people, that feels a bit icky, but it's really, really important. And how we actually project our reputation either into the market or into our internal culture so that we are building for ourselves this brand, this leadership brand that people are interacting with in a really congruent way. What we see is when people start to really lean into that area, that's when we start to see quite rapid career progression. So I want to unpack the the three there if I can with my own interpretation of what you said. And I'd love you to correct my homework. How's that sound? So the, the first one about controlling the work, what, what I'm taking from that is a tendency that we let ourselves get busy being busy. So we, so we try to do 16 things a day and we do 16 things very badly. We look at our to-do list at the end of the day and our shoulders actually slump. We go, oh, I was busy today, but I actually didn't get anything done versus real prioritization and focus and time blocking, whatever you want to call it, and, and focusing on one, two or three things and making sure that you do those things exceptionally and get them done. And then from there, the second thing I'm hearing is that then creates space for you to have a bit more creativity, more mind moments where you can actually engage your brain and, and do things. And I'm hearing from you, what are you going to do with that? Once you make the space, what are you going to do with it? Is that going to be prolific? Is that going to be productive when you do that? And the third one, my interpretation is this, is that regardless of whether you think you've got a a superhero cape on your back, everyone is only given 24 hours every day. It's up to you. Are you going to use those 24 hours individually or are you going to use those 24 hours to influence others? Because you are one cog and if you can influence others, you can spin the cog and the other other cogs in the machine then start spinning and before you know it you've multiplied your impact how does that sit with you very very accurate you know what we know particularly with b-suite leaders and remember these are experienced leaders what we know from them is that they are constantly having things thrown at them so their ability to control the pace of work they feel very reactive almost all of the time because they've just got stuff coming over the fence constantly And a lot of that stuff is in conflict with other priorities or agendas because they've got more stakeholders than any other single cohort in the organization. So for them, the pace of their work, the complexity of their work is far greater, actually, than anybody else's. So getting a handle on their priorities really is the first place to start, to stop them feeling at the mercy of everybody else's priorities. And that is how they feel. They feel like a victim of what everybody else needs. And they often feel that they're not driving their own agenda. Well, the first mistake is they often don't have their own agenda to drive, right? They haven't articulated it. So that's really, really, really important. I think the next thing that's that's super crucial is that B-suite leaders you know, have this, this tendency to have a relationship with the work that is a leftover of how they got to where they are. So for them, their relationship with the work is, um, I'm really good at time management. I'm really good at managing my to-do list. I get get more done per capita than anybody else in the organization. I'm a machine for producing outcomes, right? I'm amazing, amazing, amazing. So we tend to keep working like that, even when that to-do list gets to page 16, and we still just beaver on through it and keep pushing ourselves. And we do get to a point where we realize that even with 24 hours of the day, even knowing that 
our personal productivity per hour is 10 times more than anybody else we've ever met, even then we're hitting a wall where we can't do it all. And yet we keep trying to do it the way we've always done it. So for a lot of B-suite leaders, this, this sudden change in our relationship with what is the work is quite profound. So starting to go, okay, all the work that I used to do, the things I used to be good at, you know, I used to do the analysis on this spreadsheet and I used to do whatever. Am I the only person that can do that now in my team? And nine times out of 10, the answer is no. Somebody else could do it with a little bit of coaching or they could do it without a bit of coaching. You're just holding on to it because you like it and you're comfortable with it. And then you go, all right, well, if I delegate all of that, what's left? And I give you a cast iron promise. What is left is influencing. And very suddenly you move from finding time to influence outcomes to your whole job being about influencing outcomes. And for a lot of people, that sudden shift is a wrench. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. But I like being busy over doing this work. This is the work that I'm famous for. This is the work that got me here. This is the work that I'm comfortable with and I enjoy because I'm brilliant at it. And now you're telling me I have to give all that away to go and do this work, which I'm not as good at. I'm not as familiar with. It doesn't give me the same level of complete control because I'm influencing, not authorizing. You know, I'm just like, a lot of leaders are like, I don't want to. I want to go and play here. And the problem with that is, of course, you put pressure on your team instead of releasing them. So they produce less, you produce less, and you don't influence the outcomes that you need. So our relationship with the work is a really big shift for B-suite leaders. There's a lot there as well, Rebecca, and part of it is, again, loss, right? So you're confronted with this new role where you're now the leader, you're no longer the doer. No one has really shown you what leadership's all about yet. You're still feeling your way there. You don't feel confident as this leader yet. You've probably got some level of imposter syndrome even. So there's that gravitation to go back to comfort zone of what you're good at. But what you got what got you to here is not what is not what's going to get you to where you want to go, right? So you do need to shift gears. And then that shifting gears, two things, is that multiplication effort. So if you can train 10 people to do what you used to do, well, now we've got, now we've got 10 Rebeccas in the business. Imagine what we can do with 10. We know what we were able to do with one Rebecca. Now we've got 10 Rebeccas. Imagine what we can do with 10 Rebeccas. That would be the first mindset shift. And then the second one is, the one I want everyone to think about is every time you go back on the tools and start doing something that you used to do, you're actually robbing someone else of an opportunity for growth for them to learn how to do that. You already know how to do it. You know how to do it better than anyone, but you're robbing someone else of the opportunity to learn how to do it. How does that sit with you? You're absolutely right. And it's a mirror of what we talked about before when the C-suite steps into the B-suite space, how disempowering and frustrating it is and how we, you know, we're likely to rebel and go, well, if you want to do it, go on, then you do it. I won't do anything. You know, that kind of natural reaction. Well, we're just emulating that exact pattern of behavior and putting it in our own people. And that's where that capping actually that that capping effect happens. We act by stepping into, by stepping back into the space that we were in before, we are exactly robbing somebody of the opportunity to do it, but we're actually stepping into their space. And because we're more senior than them, 
the reaction is that they'll just go, okay, fine, go on then, you do it. Which means you've got somebody standing still when what you really needed was everyone being productive. So you've created a suddenly a very negative spiral system. And the best way to get out of that is not only to step out of doing the work, but actually to provide stretch to your team. And it often feels really counterproductive when your team's like, oh my God, we're so busy, we've got so much on. To give them even more stretch feels counterproductive, but it often is the very lid lifting exercise that they needed to feel freer to get on with it. And sometimes the reason that they've been so busy and so overworked is because you're in their area. You need to get out. Get out. Yeah, brilliant. I just love it, Rebecca. I've loved everything that we've spoken about today. I'm going to draw us to a close now with our usual uh, four last questions. Firstly, what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? Oh, okay. Well, you can't live on a diet of Maltesers. I genuinely, genuinely wish I knew that when I was 20. No, I'm kidding. What do I wish I knew? Uh, At 20 years old, so at 20 years old, I was, gosh, I was at university and I felt that when I went into, into the corporate space, that the more senior the leadership role that I had, the greater my success. So I I had this very linear um, relationship with success and seniority. And it made me make some terrible mistakes in my leadership career and made some, you know, some pretty dodgy career moves because I was chasing the wrong thing. And I think halfway through my career, I recognized that actually it's not seniority, it's impact. So being able to operate That's why we call it, you know, be a B-suite leader with C-suite impact. To be able to have the impact of a C-suite leader and not the responsibility and the pressure and the visibility of their role is actually a great joy. It means that you're able to achieve everything that you want to achieve without necessarily the crushing pressure of what goes on. And what's really interesting is that once you're at a senior enough level, you also achieve the revenue that you are after as well. So it's a kind of have your cake and eat it moment that I really didn't know existed till I was well beyond halfway through my career. And that's something that I really encourage people to strive for is think about impact over seniority because the two things are not actually intrinsically connected. I love this impact over seniority thing for sure. What I love is even more is a deeper message there is about how we define success in the first place. And whether you are telling yourself a story about what success looks like and then you're trying to live up to that story or whether you're letting societal expectations influence what you think success looks like. Whereas, listen to what Rebecca is doing here. She's redefining what success means to her and it shifts her whole perspective. Yeah, I love it. What's your favourite book? My favorite book is uh, it's Your Brain at Work by David Rock. It's a real seminal piece and it's it's about how your it's about how your mind works, why it gets distracted, why you get demotivated, really kind of a, a, a how you tick, which has really lifted the game for me in terms of change strategies, leadership strategies, broader strategies. I think it makes a, a big difference. I recommend it highly. I'm definitely gonna check that one out. Thank you. Uh, what's your favorite quote? Justin Trudeau, actually. So 2018, he's at Davos at the World Economic Forum. And he said, the pace of change has never been this fast. And it will never be this slow again. 
All right, brilliant. And finally, Rebecca, how do people get hold of you? I'm sure many people in the audience are intrigued by everything that you've shared today, whether it be your book or the work that you do with organizations. How do people find you if they'd like to know more? Yeah, so I'm easy to find on boldhr.com.au and also on LinkedIn. The, The areas that I think people often come hunting around for are threefold. You know, one is really the coaching and mentoring that we do with B-suite leaders. And it is me that does that coaching. I know a lot of people sometimes ask, is, you know, is it going to be you? Yes, yes, it is me um, that does that work with B-suite leaders and really committed to building that C-suite impact in their organizations. And I also work with groups of B-suite leaders, so teams, to facilitate how effective they are as a group. And a little bit like what you were talking about, Mick, which was how do we create this cohort for change? How do we start to do things differently you know, at group levels? That's really the work that we do there. And then the final space is training so that we start to accelerate even further the, the, changing, the, the change in how we lead. One of the most effective ways to do that is to train your teams on how you're leading differently so that you create an entire environment of accountability and everybody knows where we're going. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. We'll put all of those links in the show notes as well. So thank you so much. I've learned so much today. I know that the audience will as well. Thank you for your time and we wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you, Mick. It's been gorgeous to be here. Today's episode was brought to you by my new book, You're a Leader, Now What? The Proven Path to High Performance Leadership. The book contains many of the great lessons that we have learned together here on the Leadership Project podcast, together with lessons that I've collected over my 30-year career as a leader. The book is aimed towards first-time leaders, but really there's something in there for everyone. If you would like to show your appreciation for this show, we would greatly appreciate if you were able to go and get your copy of the book on Amazon as either an ebook or a paperback. And if you could leave us an honest review on Amazon. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Project podcast at mixbeers.com. A big call out to Faris Sadek for his sound design and editing of our audio and video content. And to the whole team at TLP, Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo, Rika Vadanes, and my wonderful supportive wife, Say Spears, who is also our operations manager. This show would simply not be possible without you. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. You can catch the video podcast and our video of the week at the Leadership Project YouTube channel. And you can join the conversation at the Leadership Project Facebook community group. We look forward to bringing you more great content and interviews next week as we continue to learn together and lead together. In the meantime, please do take care look out for each other, and always remember to challenge the status quo. listening to the leadership project at mixbeers.com a huge call out to faris sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at tlp 
Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calipo, and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together. Oh, 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 o